This is the Daily Podcast Practice Show for Tuesday, November 16th of 2021, day 16 of National Podcast Post Month, Napod Pomo. I'm your host, Rich Grimshaw, here to practice the art, the craft, and the sport of podcasting. And it's good to be here during my daily workout to build my podcasting muscles, hoping that someday this work is going to pay off with something. I don't know what. I call it a workout, but I enjoy it. So it's uh, it's more like recess time at school, right? And I want to do more of this and do it better. And I trust that this daily workout exercise is going to somehow get me close to that goal. But just exactly how is a mystery. According to our friends at nationaltoday.com, today is National Button Day. National Button Day. Boy, we seem to be reaching deep into the bag for this. All right, they have a timeline of the button that is kind of amusing. So let's take a look at that. The button, as a means to fastened clothing, has been around since 13th century Germany. So I guess that's where it started. 1250, which is the very middle of the 13th century, Button Makers Guild established. The French established the first collective that designed arti- that designed artisan buttons, making buttons a status symbol. Fifty years later, 1300, the church denounced buttons, the church being the Catholic Church, I believe. Europe was so button-crazy, the church started calling them the, quote, Devil's snare, unquote. Well, what was before buttons? Come on. This was probably because most women's clothing of the time buttoned up the front. Oh, give me a break. In 1896, wow, 396 years later, almost 400 years later, button-down collars were invented. Polo players were the first to button down their collars to stop them from getting in the way during a match. Brooks Brothers copied the look and created a lasting trend in 1896. Well, thank you to the the Brooks Brothers. Four years later, 1900, Muscatine, Iowa became pearl button capital of the world. Muscatine, Iowa? What is this? Noting the abundance of pearl mussels in nearby waters, a German immigrant opened a button-making factory in small-town Iowa. In, how about a small town in Iowa, which soon grew to be the largest manufacturer of pearl buttons in the world. And in 2014, buttoned up button, a button that was once part of a Texas Confederate Navy uniform circa the Civil War, sold for over 2000 U.S. dollars. Wow, that's a collector's item for sure. So considering that the button is such a useful artifact and has affected cultures worldwide, why not International Button Day? Why are we so parochial and just saying National Button Day? I don't get that. By the way, I have tried sewing buttons back onto clothes after they've popped off. That that happens in later years, okay? And I'm hopeless. I am just hopeless. I mean, I can get them attached, but it's ugly. <laughs> really. So, I will gladly pay an experienced artisan, an experienced seams person, to reattach buttons that have come loose. I'll just take my drawers and my shirts over to the alterations place and have them sew them on because they look so much better. 
It's kind of like playing the drums, I think. It looks deceptively easy, but it ain't. Not everybody can do it. All right, let's go to a birthday today. Let's see who we can pick on. Born on this day in 1887 in New York City, New York, the American architect Philip Hubert Froman. Interesting guy, Philip. He designed his first house when he was 14. Now, I should say that he was born in New York City, but somehow he then ended up in California, and I'm not sure exactly how that happened, but he was very young when that happened. And at the age of 14, he designed his first house. I don't know that they built it, but he designed it. In 1907, age 20, he became the youngest person ever to pass the state architectural examination in California. That, folks, that's an achievement. Well, by today's standards, it's quite an achievement. I don't know what the test was like back then, but today it ain't easy. The next year, when he was 21, he opened his own office in Pasadena, California, and he focused on the design of both churches and houses. But he really went toward the churches because, by far, his greatest endeavor was designing and overseeing the construction of the Washington National Cathedral. <laughs> the Washington National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. And he did this for more than 50 years. Back in 1919, he started to make preliminary sketches on how to change the design that had been started a few years earlier by someone who died. I, don't, I can't remember the name. And then 52 years later, March 1971, at age 83, he finally retired from that endeavor. That whole time, he was designing and doing construction inspections of this stuff. 50 years. Wow. Uh, the mind is boggled at that. Now, sadly, just uh, eight, no, 16, I don't know, 15, 16 months later, August 1972, he was hit by a car, at, and he was near the cathedral. And then two months later, he, he died. So, so happy birthday, Philip. And thank you for your contributions to our country's cultural heritage. It is significant. You know, yesterday I threatened to look into the CB craze of the 1970s, and I'm going to make good on that threat today. According to Wikipedia, the free multilingual open collaborative online encyclopedia created and maintained by a community of volunteer contributors using a wiki-based editing system, after the 1973 oil crisis, during which I was alive and buying gasoline for my car, thank you very much, the United States government imposed a nationwide speed limit of 55 miles per hour. And the reason was this would save gas. It would be an overall efficient thing if everybody drove 55. I don't know that anyone's ever disproved that. I thought it was stupid at the time. I, feel, I still think it's stupid, but it was, it was a crisis, a legitimate crisis, and that's what the government did. Okay, this was a time, it was crazy. You couldn't get gasoline unless you waited in a very long line at the gas station. And even then, sometimes you wouldn't get it. And there was rationing. And it was, it was a crazy time. So commercial truckers used CB radios, citizen band radios, to talk to each other and help find service stations that had better fuel supplies, right? And to let the other truckers know of speed traps that were being set by the state troopers, by the Smokies. 
1974, they used them to organize some blockades and convoys to make a very loud protest about the new speed limit and other trucking regulations that had been put into play. Because they were mad, okay? These independent truckers got paid by the mile. And you can't go as many miles in an hour at 55 miles per hour as you can at 75 or 80, okay? So this means it took them longer to cover the miles, and so they were earning less money. They were less productive, and you, you bet they were mad. Originally, to have a citizen's band radio, a CB radio, you needed an FCC license, and you had to pay $20 for that. And you had to have a call sign like WKLXQT or something like that. But when the CB craze was at its peaks, folks just ignored that requirement, and they invented their own call signs, which they used as nicknames or handles, like Rubber Ducky and others, which I don't recall. But Rubber Ducky was a a very popular one. That was in uh, the Convoy album, the, the Convoy song, I believe. Well, nobody in government was enforcing the rules, so more people just ignored them, and they just bought the radios, and they started to use them. And that is the fuel that lit the CB radio fire in the 1970s. And now, folks, you know, because you listen to the Daily Podcast Practice Show. Yeah. What a great value, right? By the way, I want to talk about Wikipedia because this is where I got the information. And frankly, every single day of my life for years and years and years, I use Wikipedia to find out something. Now, you can argue or debate the value or the I should say the accurateness and the veracity of some of the information on that site. And I get it. I think that's a legitimate argument. But for 98% of what you're searching for, it's good information and it's useful. And I... And I rely on it. And I expect that in many ways you do too. Well, now listen to me. Free can only go so far. So if you want Wikipedia to thrive, just please do as I do. Make a contribution. I've been making uh, an annual donation to Jimmy Wales at Wikipedia for about 10 years now. It's modest, okay? But it's something and it certainly recognized the value that I get out of it. And I'm going to continue doing this until, well, until my life is over, whenever that is. I don't know of any other cause that could be this worthy except for, well, maybe the Humane Society. That's another one. Please give this some consideration and maybe throw 10 bucks toward Jimmy or 50 bucks towards Jimmy or, heck, even give him 100 um, give them 365. That's a buck a day. That's certainly worth it, I think. Please consider that. And thank you, Jimmy Wales, for your vision of Wikipedia and the execution. We appreciate it. And that is all for today. We're going to wrap this up and stick a fork in it because it's done. I am Rich Grimshaw, and you are invited to join me again tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>